So last week and this week, I'm taking some time to look at the events of the last week of Jesus' earthly life as we lead up to Easter next week uh, and the resurrection of Jesus. Just a reminder, this Friday, we have a Good Friday service at 6.30 here. You are welcome to come here at 6.30. We will also stream it in case you can't be here in person. Uh, The Good Friday service is just an opportunity to take a longer time to reflect upon uh, the last week of Jesus' life. We basically do a mix of songs readings and uh, times of prayer. And so I encourage you to come if you can make it this Friday, 6.30. And then, of course, we'll have Easter Sunday next Sunday. So last week we had uh, focused on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus willingly submitted himself to the plan that he, the Father, the Spirit, had put together from the foundation of the world to save us from our sins. And Jesus, there in the garden, knowing that he was about to drink the full weight of the wrath of the Father on human sin, willingly submitted himself to the plan, saying, not my will, but yours be done, God. And after his time in the garden, he was arrested as Judas, the betrayer, brought uh, the guards to arrest him. He went through this trial, first with the Jewish leaders and then with the Roman leaders. And even though the Roman leaders found no basis for any charges against him, they gave in to the crowd that was shouting for Jesus' crucifixion. Releasing Barabbas instead, the murderer of the insurrectionist, and putting Jesus Uh, to death on the cross. What I'm going to do this morning is I want to look at the crucifixion, look at um, Jesus on the cross. As he's there on the cross, there's seven statements that he makes, seven final statements that he makes on the cross, and I want to look at four of them this morning in order to understand what the death of Jesus is all about. Certainly when someone knows they're going to die, uh, their last words that they speak can have a lot of meaning, and it's the same for Jesus as he hangs there on the cross, there are seven statements he make, makes, and we're going to focus on what those statements are, four of them in particular, and what they have to teach us about the death of Jesus and what it means for us. And again, I just want to encourage you, please, to come to this time with all the soberness, uh, with all the solemnness that this demands. Those who are at home, try to limit any distractions. Come giving this the seriousness that it deserves. This is Jesus on the cross dying in our place. And I think it demands of us to come to him with a recognition for what it is that he is accomplishing for us. You know, even Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he said this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a good verse for any who feel like I talk about the cross too much and talk about the gospel too much. See, Paul says, listen, that's all I want to talk about. That's all. Everything comes back to this, to Jesus and him crucified. This is is the heart of everything. So we're going to read passages from Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel, and John's gospel to look at these seven statements that Jesus makes on the cross. So beginning in Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 47. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Now Matthew's gospel. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who, with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. And now John's Gospel. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let me pray before we continue. Jesus, we know that no words can do justice to this. That we really should just sit in silence and meditate on the death of Jesus. But Lord, I pray as we meditate on what this means, we pray, God, that you would please help us to truly understand what it is that you accomplished for us, that we would take it to heart, that we would respond, Lord, with the worship and adoration that you deserve. May you be glorified and lifted up here, Jesus, and draw all men and women and children who hear these words to yourself. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, deserted by his disciples, accused of blasphemy by the Jewish leaders, tried and sentenced by the Romans, led out to the cross. And as he's nailed on the cross between two criminals, there's these seven last words that he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Dear woman, here is your son, here is your mother. I am thirsty. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This morning, I'm going to focus on four of those statements and use them to help us to understand why Jesus died and what it means for us. The first one is this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Remember that he has been 
nailed to the cross in between two criminals. One criminal is mocking him, and the other criminal says, don't you understand that we're under the same sentence? This man's done nothing wrong. We are receiving the punishment that we deserve. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I'm sorry, that's number two, isn't it? Number one is this. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers came up and mocked him. Offering him wine vinegar, they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Maybe you remember when Jesus was in the garden and they came to arrest him. Peter wanted to defend him. And Peter took out a sword and he swung the sword and he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, basically, like, what are you doing? Stop, Peter. He says to him in Matthew 26, 53, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I think of that statement as I think of Jesus here, nailed to the cross with this crowd mocking him, taunting him, making fun of him. Think of Jesus with these words saying, you know, I could snap my fingers and I could wipe out all of them. I could call down the legions of angels to come and destroy all of these people who are mocking me. But instead, with holy restraint, he holds back his divine power and instead not only tolerates the abuse that's going on, but he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. God's grace towards the ignorant is a theme in the New Testament. There's a few passages that came to mind as I read that. Think of Acts 3, 17 to 19. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. He says, now, brothers, I, want, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He's speaking to the Israelites who put Jesus to death. He's saying, I know you acted in ignorance, but now God has made clear who this Jesus is, so you're no longer ignorant. Now you know. Repent. Turn from your sins to faith in Jesus. Acts 17. This is Paul talking in Athens. He says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Pretty similar theme, right? He's saying, Paul is saying now, he's saying, again, I know you acted in ignorance. You didn't know who Jesus was, but now you know. So what are you going to do? Repent. Turn from your sins to faith in Jesus, who God raised from the dead. Now, 1 Timothy 1, this is Paul talking about himself. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see the common theme here. Some people are ignorant. They just don't un understand who Jesus is. They don't get it. But once they know, there's no longer any excuse. Repent, turn from your sins, and put your faith in Jesus who died for your sins. So some of you out here sitting today or at home may be in that camp where you didn't know. You didn't know who Jesus truly was and what he did. I hope by the end of this time with me, you will truly understand, and there will be no more excuse. 
And when you under, try to understand what it is you need to do, the answer is this, repent and believe. Turn from your sinful self-centeredness. Put your faith and trust in Jesus who died for your sins. So on that cross, Jesus, instead of calling down all the legions of angels to destroy the people who are mocking him, chooses instead to say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they've done. Think about, if I can make this personal for you, think about the people or person that's hurt you the deepest in your life. Do you think if you had the power that Jesus had at his disposal, you know, if you could snap your fingers and have the legions of angels come and destroy that person or those people, you think maybe once in your life you might have, you might have used that, you might have, you know, in a moment of anger called upon the legions of angels to destroy that person? And here's Jesus instead saying, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. If they knew what they were doing, they wouldn't do this if they knew that they were killing the Son of God. That line I have found to be very helpful when it comes to forgiving people. For God, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To understand that some people act in ignorance. Some people act just out of not knowing what they are doing, not understanding the harm they are causing. To be able to, as Jesus prayed for his tormentors, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To have pity and compassion on those even who are abusing, even who are harming. They don't know what they're doing. This statement of Jesus gives us a picture of not only Jesus and how he feels about his accusers, but how he feels about us as well. Think of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That line of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, isn't just about Jesus and these people who are abusing him. This is Jesus and you. That when you were acting in unbelief and ignorance as an enemy of God, he offered his forgiveness to you, his grace to you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the amazing grace of God. The second line is this. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is the line that I was referring to earlier. As the two criminals are there, one criminal hurls insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. What a perfect example here we have of repentance and faith. This is a criminal dying on the cross, hours maybe to live, and he encapsulates repentance and faith very well for someone who's about to die. He recognizes his guilt. I deserve to die. He recognizes Jesus' innocence. This man has done nothing wrong. He recognizes that Jesus is Lord. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows that he has a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, that he has the power over life and death, and that by putting his faith in him, that he'll be saved from death. And even though this man is really going to do nothing for God in the next hour, right? He's not going to be baptized. He's not going to be 
giving to the poor. He's not going to be turning his life around and serving the God with the rest of his life. He's about to die. It's a true deathbed confession. Even though all of that is true, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Even though this man is not going to do anything to deserve the grace of God, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise today. Do you understand that? Are you offended by that? Can you imagine how offensive the story would be? I mean, imagine you have gathered there at the cross because this man, this criminal up here, raped and murdered your family. Or this criminal had done something horrible to someone you love. And you're gathered there to watch him die to get the justice that he deserves. And then there is Jesus here offering this man forgiveness of sin and saying, I tell you the truth, you'll be with me today in paradise. How offensive would that be? How offensive would that be to the Pharisees, the religious leaders who've been spending their whole life trying to be good, trying to follow God, trying to obey his commandments, and then they're here at the cross watching this Jesus die, and Jesus is telling this man, this criminal, that he is going to be in paradise with God today, all because he confessed his sins, recognized Jesus as the Lord that he is. That's it. That's all he needed to do. This gospel is so offensive, and, and this criminal on the cross showcases just how offensive the gospel can be. As long as you believe that in any way you deserve God's favor, that you can earn heaven, this story is offensive. But if you understand that it is only by God's grace that any of us are right with God, then you understand this criminal on the cross because you see there yourself that even though you did nothing to earn it, when you put your faith in Jesus, confessing your sins and trusting in him for salvation, that Jesus says the same to you. I tell you the truth, you'll be with me in paradise. That's grace, an undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver, that you deserve nothing, he owes you nothing, but he gives you eternal life. That's the grace of God. Listen, just a few passages that highlight this. Think of Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So even the criminal on the cross can look at that and say, That's me. Not by works, it's a complete gift of God to someone who did not deserve it. Romans chapter 3, 22 to 24, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, the best Pharisee standing there before the cross and the criminal hanging next to Jesus are in the same boat before God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only way they're going to be right with God is through trusting in Jesus. Not by good works, not by trying harder, but by trusting in Jesus. Romans chapter 4, 4 through 5. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Again, it's not about your works. It's about trusting in Jesus that makes you righteous, right with God. 
So as these criminals hang next to Jesus, one taunts him and the other says, this man's done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you've come into your kingdom. He says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. It shows us that the gospel, that salvation is not a merit system. It's not about how good you are. It's not about what you've done. It's about putting your trust in Jesus. And if you're offended, you're not alone. But it shows that your understanding of the gospel is still somehow that you earn it, that you deserve it. Not that it's a complete gift of God. Think of how the Pharisees must have felt when Jesus said these words to them. I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. That's how offensive Jesus was to these religious leaders who thought that it was by their own good works that they were earning God's favor. He says, no, I'm telling you, the prostitutes and tax collectors, the ones you hate and look down upon as the worst of all sinners, they are getting in heaven ahead of you because they recognize their need for Jesus and they have confessed their need for him and are believing in him. Not you, Pharisees, who think it's still by your own good works. Third line on the cross is this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 45 to 46, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was deserted by his disciples. He endured all kinds of physical pain being nailed to a cross, but we don't have the words here, you know, my God, my God, why did Judas betray me? My God, my God, why did the disciples leave me? Why am I all alone? My God, my God, why such pain? Greater than all of that is the pain of being forsaken by the Father. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the torture above all tortures. Remember that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed to the Father, if there's any other way than having to drink this cup, this cup of the wrath of the Father on human sin, let's please take door number two. But in the end, not my will, but yours be done. And then on that cross, the Father turned his face away, abandoned the Son on the cross. Remember what I said last week, that you know when you're abandoned by a friend, it hurts. When you're betrayed by a spouse, it hurts even worse. When you're betrayed by a parent, it hurts very much. But this is beyond all of that. This is betrayal by the eternal Father, who had for all eternity existed in perfect union with the Son, turning his back on the Son as the Son takes the weight of human sin on his shoulders. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what's really going on here in this quote, it's not just he's crying out because the Father has forsaken him. He's actually quoting from Psalm 22. As is often the case with Jesus, he has Scripture on his tongue at all times. And so let me just read a few of the verses from Psalm 22 and just see this psalm that was written thousands of years before Jesus, just how it predicts what's going on here, how it prophesies the death of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. 
Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Amen? Amen. So he's on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's not just crying out because God has forsaken him, but he is quoting a psalm. He's quoting a psalm that when you read it all the way through, first of all, describes everything that is happening in front of him. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They've encircled me. They're casting lots for my clothing. They're gloating over me. I can see all my bones and my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. It's prophesying everything that's going on there, but it ends with this hopeful turn where he says, basically, future generations are going to be told about the Lord and what he has done. They're going to proclaim his righteousness for he has done it. It ends with this hopeful declaration of what Jesus is accomplishing here on the cross. You see, from those first two quotes, we see that Jesus offers forgiveness and grace through his death on the cross. But now in the third verse, we see how he has accomplished that, how it is that Jesus can offer forgiveness and grace to all of us. That the only way to satisfy the justice of a holy God was for his son to take on the punishment that we deserved. Someone had to die. It was either going to be us or Jesus took the punishment that we deserve, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity decided to take the punishment upon themselves that we deserved. This is not cosmic child abuse, the Father sending his Son unwillingly to die. This is the Son willingly dying in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved out of love for us. God taking the justice upon himself so that we might have forgiveness of sins. As Jesus drinks the cup down to the bottom, The Passover lamb was slain so that his blood might shield us from death. That should have been you there on that cross. That should have been you taking the punishment. But Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve and offers you forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read this earlier. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our sin, the punishment we deserve, and he gives us his righteousness, his right relationship with the Father so that we can have eternal life. He was forsaken so that you will never be. Hebrews 13, 5, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Amen? God declares, I'm never gonna forsake you. I'm never gonna turn my back on you. I'm never going to leave you. That Jesus took that completely so that you can trust that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. How can God offer this forgiveness, this grace, this eternal life to you? 
not because of anything you've done to deserve it, but because Jesus took the punishment that you deserved. Last line is this. It is finished. John 19, 29 to 30. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Kind of raises a couple questions, right? First question would be, what is finished? You know, the crowds are like, wait, what is finished? And then what did whatever is finished, what did that accomplish? What did you accomplish by finishing whatever it is that you just finished? The Greek word there is tetelestai, which means carrying out the will of somebody and so to fulfill obligations. That word means you've carried out the will of somebody else and so you have fulfilled obligations. Make sense? So when he says it is finished, he is saying, I have finished the job that you gave me to do, Father. I have completed and fulfilled all the obligations. I have perfectly lived without sin, completing the race to the very end. And now I have died on the cross, taking the punishment that they deserve for their sins. First Peter 1 18, 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Though most many of you know it's Passover, the, the, the Jews are celebrating Passover now, and here it says that Passover lamb was pointing us to the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, who was slaughtered and died for our sins once for all. To tell us die, it is finished. I have fulfilled the obligations. I have finished the race, completed everything that you gave me to do, Father. It is finished. That's not the only thing that was finished. Matthew writes this in his account of the crucifixion. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple separates the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God is from the rest. Only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, can go into that Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. It's pretty important, pretty important curtain there. And as Jesus dies, declaring it is finished, this curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, as if God is ripping it apart, saying we no longer need this. That it's no longer that only the high priest once a year can come into the presence of God. But now the presence of God has been opened. The way to a relationship with God has been opened to everyone through Jesus' death on the cross. This whole sacrificial system of bringing in animals to sacrifice and kill and atone for the sins of men and women. It's finished. It's no longer necessary. It's done away with. The curtain has been torn in two. Having to go through this mediator, through this high priest, it's finished. No more. Now we go through Jesus, the high priest, into the presence of God. It is finished. Not only means that Jesus completed the work the Father had given him to do, but that whole old way of life is finished. Of coming to God through the mediator, coming to God through the sacrificial system, it's finished. The curtain has been torn. The way has been opened for us to come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ, his son. As he experiences the forsakenness, the judgment of God, 
we receive his righteousness, his right relationship. And now just as the son can enter the presence of the father without fear, but come boldly, now we as sons and daughters of God can come into his presence boldly without fear. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So by this time, I'm hoping that anyone who was in ignorance beforehand now is no longer in ignorance, but now, now understands what the death of Jesus means. It's not just a sad death of a good man, but this was a plan from the foundation of the world that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had to rescue us from sin, from death. That Jesus, the Son of God, willingly went and willingly took upon himself the punishment that we deserved out of love for us to offer us forgiveness of sins and eternal life, to make us right with God. It is finished. It's done. There's no more condemnation left. There's no more works left that you need to do to earn God's favor. All you need to do is turn from sin and trust in Jesus, the one who died for you. There's no more ignorance anymore. Turn and believe. And for those of you who already know this, I want to share a passage from Charles Spurgeon, 19th century British preacher, that really spoke to me this week about how we who understand this, who already know Jesus, should respond to what he's done for us. He said this, Let us abhor the sin which brought such agony upon our beloved Lord. What an accursed thing is sin, which crucified the Lord Jesus. Do you laugh at it? Will you go and spend an evening to see a mimic performance of it? Do you roll sin under your tongue as a sweet morsel and then come to God's house on the Lord's day morning and think to worship him? Worship him. Worship him with sin indulged in your breast. Worship him with sin loved and pampered in your life? Oh, sirs, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I valued the knife which had been crimsoned with his blood? If I made a friend of the murderer and daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Oh, that there was an abyss as deep as Christ's mercy, that I might at once hurl this dagger of sin into its depths, whence it might never be brought to light again. Be gone, O sin. Thou art banished from the heart where Jesus reigns. Be gone, for thou hast crucified my Lord and made him cry, Why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, my hearers, if you did but know yourselves and know the love of Christ, you would each one vow that you would harbor sin no longer.
right? It's one thing to hear these words of mine and be like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before. Thank you. I know, I know. Jesus died for my sins. But it's another thing to respond and recognize that if it was your sin that nailed him there, to treasure it is like hanging on to the bloody knife that killed your friend. Run as far away from it. Recognize that Jesus died for you, not so that you might continue in that sin, that you might be his completely, living for him and bringing him the maximum amount of glory through your life. Amen.